You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Did you know, Breath of the Wild's prototype was originally centered around a real-life Japanese castle. One of the first decisions the game's director Hidemaru Fujibayashi made in development was to make his new reimagining of Hyrule big, really big. To help wrap their heads around the sheer size of it, his team built a prototype Hyrule the same size as Kyoto, the city where Nintendo headquarters is located. They thought about how frequently you'd come across convenience stores or mailboxes while walking across Kyoto, and used that to determine how often Link should stumble across elements like shrines, Koroks, and enemies. To help decide how far apart to make Hyrule's landmarks, Fujibayashi's team used Google Earth and 3D mapping tools to inject models from many of Kyoto's landmarks, which means in the prototype, Link was exploring places like Kiyomizudera, a 400-year-old Buddhist temple. Small sections of this prototype would be shown at SEDEC 2017, a Japanese conference for game developers which is closed to the public. Cameras were banned at the conference, but several photos surfaced in 2020, showing not only the Buddhist temple, but also Link skydiving into Himeji Castle, an 83-room complex dating back to Japan's feudal period. Unlike the other landmarks, Himeji isn't actually located in Kyoto, it's in Hyogo, about 60 miles away, but Fujibayashi insisted on its inclusion as it's his favorite castle in all of Japan, and is generally regarded as the most impressive feudal castle to survive into the modern era. According to Fujibayashi, Himeji Castle stood at the center of the Kyoto prototype, occupying the space that eventually became Hyrule Castle in the final game. Gameplay footage is yet to surface, but in some Japanese interviews we had translated, the developers mentioned a few more landmarks found in the prototype, like Tenmangu, a shrine dedicated to Tenjin, the Shinto god of learning. Another was Kyoto Tower, the 400-foot steel spire, which is also the city's tallest man-made structure. Another was Kinkakuji, the Buddhist temple with a golden phoenix on top that also served as inspiration for the bell tower in Pokemon Gold and Silver. There was also Ginkakuji, a 500-year-old temple with a silver bird on its roof, also referenced in Pokemon through Lugia. The Zelda team described the prototype as surreal, with some saying they felt like tourists, while others said climbing and jumping off castles and temples made them feel more like ninjas. The 1,200-year-old pagoda known as Toji Temple was in the prototype as well, and even an old village, but probably the strangest location was 
was Kyoto Station, which in real life is a hub for both above-ground railroads and underground subway tracks. Measuring 15 stories tall, it's the second-largest rail station in all of Japan, and it must have been pretty strange to experience as Link. Breath of the Wild was the biggest game Nintendo ever created, with the Zelda team starting off at just 10, then eventually peaking at around 300 developers as it neared completion. Nintendo even had to borrow 100 staffers from Xenoblade Chronicles developer Monolith Soft just to get past the finish line. Shigeru Miyamoto said he specifically didn't want to bring on hardcore gamers, since they'd probably just try to improve upon what earlier games had already accomplished. He'd much rather hire designers with a wide array of skills and hobbies so they could introduce new ideas and a breath of fresh air. Breath of the Wild's producer Eiji Aonuma agreed with Miyamoto's philosophy, telling IGN, I don't necessarily want to work with someone who's good at playing games. I'd rather work with people who maybe have an interest in climbing mountains or love scuba diving in the ocean. Just someone with a very different skill. And so maybe by having those skills, we can incorporate them into our games. Mountain climbing was one of Breath of the Wild's core mechanics, but underwater exploration like scuba diving was never implemented. At least not yet. One of Fujibayashi's personal hobbies is cave diving. Together with other Nintendo staffers, he's part of an adventure club that explores underwater caves. Glitching Breath of the Wild's camera reveals underwater environments never seen during normal play, so it appears diving may have been experimented with during development, and might find its way back into the series in a future installment. Another developer hobby, motorcycle riding, almost didn't make it into the game but was pushed through at the last minute. The idea was initially rejected due to its absurdity, but Aonuma, who rides a motorcycle in real life, kept pushing and pushing, even whispering to Fujibayashi, the bike, the bike, until he finally agreed. As a small compromise, they settled on making the motorcycle Link's reward for completing the final DLC, because even though it kind of breaks the game, at that point the game is already over. Initially, the team imported the Master Cycle from Mario Kart 8 and test drove it around Hyrule, but to make sure Breath of the Wild's motorcycle was absolutely perfect, they bought the programmer an off-road bike so we'd have an intimate understanding of how Link should feel driving on all terrains. As general producer, Mio Miyamoto wasn't as involved in the game's prototyping as director Fujibayashi. Fujibayashi recalled showing the prototype to Miyamoto, saying, When we first presented this to Mr. Miyamoto, we left little treats like rupees on the trees, but we also left other things in other places we thought he might go. But he just kept climbing trees, up and down. And so we got to the point where we go, do you want to look at other stuff? But he just kept on going. He spent about an hour just climbing trees. That's when Fujibayashi knew they had something special. And from then on, he frequently checked with Miyamoto to make sure he was happy with the game. But sometimes Miyamoto wasn't happy and asked for changes. For example, until halfway into development, Link could stab a sword into a rock face while climbing to take a break and regain stamina. But Miyamoto said the mechanic was ridiculous, as people can't realistically stand on top of a sword. Fujibayashi was aware that the game was already full of unrealistic fantasies, like how lightning isn't actually attracted to metal, wind from a Korok leaf couldn't really push a sail, and even Link's glider was unrealistic. But in the end, Miyamoto was the boss, so the rock-stabbing technique got cut. Initially, Fujibayashi considered including up to 120 items in Breath of the Wild. He came up with a list of original items, as well as every item from previous Zelda titles, like the hookshot. He told IGN, In the early stages of development, we actually do some tests with 
double hook shots and just being able to kind of go anywhere. Like Spider-Man, your mobility and your speed was just kind of incredible. There's lots of fans in the staff, even at pretty high levels, who really like the hook shot and they kept bugging me about it. I eventually just had to say, no, there will be no hook shot in this game. Breath of the Wild is all about doing new things. Ultimately, he decided less is more and whittled Link's arsenal down to just four Sheikah runes, although some items ended up being repurposed as weapons, like the boomerang and the Korok leaf. The last item added to the game was Cryonis, adapted from the sand rod from A Link Between Worlds. Probably the strangest item that went unused was the Spy Drone. Alongside Magnesis and Remote Bombs, official concept art shows a device that pops out of the back of the Sheikah Slate and folds into a drone shaped like a dragonfly, similar to how the Sheikah Slate summons the motorcycle. According to concept art, the drone had a rotating camera on the bottom, which presumably would have sent the camera's perspective to the Sheikah Slate, as well as to the Wii U gamepad. Link's drone is pretty similar in appearance and function to the real-life Parrot AR drone, which may have been another one of those developer hobbies we talked about earlier. The AR drone was the world's first mass-market drone that ordinary consumers could purchase and fly right out of the box, no technical expertise required. And it was an international sensation, selling over half a million units between 2010 and 2013, the exact same time Breath of the Wild entered development on Wii U. Just like Link's Dragonfly, AR drones were controlled with a tablet or smartphone, had a bottom-mounted camera, and sent live video directly into users' hands. Having a drone could have allowed Link to scout hard to reach locations, solve puzzles, or just have fun pestering animals or skimming the water's surface. The Dragonfly drone would have been perfect for the Wii U's unique hardware, with Link's point of view appearing on the TV screen while the drone's perspective appeared on the gamepad, with touch controls used to change camera direction. AR drones were also capable of hands-free flight, either by following a set path directed by its owner, or instructed to simply follow its owner, which in Breath of the Wild would have made it possible to capture the kind of footage shown off in the game's trailers. To be clear though, the concept art doesn't specify hands-free flight, so we can only speculate how the Dragonfly would have functioned if it hadn't been cut. When Nintendo decided to release Breath of the Wild simultaneously on both Wii U and Switch, some exclusive gamepad features got thrown out so both versions would offer an identical experience. The only function confirmed by pre-release footage was map access, but that footage also shows a button to access additional functions. Fans assume item management was one of them, but apparently the cuts were much deeper than just quality of life improvements. According to Fujibayashi, disabling the gamepad meant even the game's story had to be changed. Just a few days before launch, he said, When it was originally just for the Wii U, we had touch controls, but we had to remove them. We felt the way the Sheikah Slate is represented in the game and how we use the gamepad in real life synced really well. So when we had to remove it, I did feel like, oh, it's too bad we had to do that. And because it was so tied into the scenario, we did have to go back and redesign and rethink the scenario. In the end, they made it so the Wii U gamepad literally does nothing. It's just a black screen when you're playing on the TV, and if you switch gameplay to the gamepad, the TV then goes black. Conversely, there were also some ideas that only would have been possible on Switch that got scrapped so the game could still run on Wii U, like HD rumble-based gameplay, which Eiji Aonuma says will probably make its way into the sequel. As he explained it, the Switch's HD rumble allows you to experience what a character feels when they touch something. For example, when they take an object in hand, you can feel it through the vibrations. It's a rather interesting approach and adds more realism, and we wanted to develop gameplay around it. It wasn't time constraints that kept us from implementing these ideas, but 
the fact the Wii U and Switch versions had to be identical. But in the future, we'll be free from this limitation caused by the dual console connection, so we'll be able to use it in the next Zelda. In the game's final build, players collect resources to convert an empty slice of Hyrule into a quaint village called Tari Town. But despite being a fan favorite, Tari Town was actually a much less ambitious version of its original concept, which would have allowed players to customize their creations any way they wanted. In other words, a little more Animal Crossing and a little less Fetch Quest. According to Eiji Aonuma, Originally, we wanted to make something players can build on their own. The backside of that story is actually when we were creating Breath of the Wild, the planners wanted a part of the game that could use game design tools and not rely on the programmers, so that's how Tari Town and also the house came about. In Creating a Champion, an art book that describes lots of ideas changed in development, lead structural artist Manabu Takehara appears to be providing more details on that original concept, and seems to imply that houses could be constructed all across Hyrule, rather than restricted to one small area. He says, These square rooms are simply stacked together and locked into place. Then you can add a wooden deck or flower bed in whatever way you choose. They can be freely and easily arranged as well. Of course, they are easy to break down and can be transported later as you see fit. Will Bolson be able to rebuild Hyrule with his innovative stacked construction? However, in the final game, all methods of customization were ultimately stripped out, and every player's town ends up looking exactly the same. But it's worth noting that the original, more personalized concept is still reflected in the final game's architecture. Unlike the rest of Hyrule with its more traditionally built homes, the homes in Tari Town are built from stacked containers, because they were initially intended to be rearranged and relocated. Alongside some animal-based ideas that were implemented, like horses eating apples and shaking off water, early concept art also shows some ideas ideas that didn't make the game's final cut. Like horses swaying in tune to nearby music and sticking their heads through windows while Link's inside a house, as if to say, Hey, what you doing? Kukos can be seen sitting on Link's head, seemingly against his will, and a giant Kuko was considered as a flying steed, presumably because their usual glide mechanic from earlier games was made redundant by the glider. Concept art also shows Link petting a dog, and the developers even explored giving dogs the ability to talk. Feedback from fans actually made Fujibayashi reconsider the level of animal interactivity for Breath of the Wild 2, telling IGN, In the game it seems like you can do anything, but what it really is are all these interlocking systems where you actually have a pretty limited number of actions that can do a ton of different things. So we would actually have to put in a custom action just for petting a dog that couldn't really be used for anything else. But finding out that people people want to pet dogs gives me a lot of motivation, a lot of ideas for things we can put into the sequel. Speaking of animals, concept art also shows six unused divine beasts, like a manta ray and submarine-themed whale, who it's probably safe to assume were planned for Hyrule's ocean, and this giant mechanical crab was probably meant for a beach environment. There was also a brontosaurus surrounded by lightning, which is fitting since brontosaurus is actually a Greek word meaning thunder lizard, possibly considered for an area that's always storming, like Thundra Plateau. A land-walking jellyfish appears to be based on the tripods from War of the Worlds, and another is possibly based on a chimera from Greek mythology, which are usually depicted as lion-goat hybrids with a snake for a tail. Or it could be a Brazilian headless goat, a legendary creature with flames instead of a head. Even the champions could have been different. In place of Rivali, concept art shows a whip-wielding Kokiri champion, suggesting an entire village like Kokiri Forest was considered as well. As for Link, the art team submitted over a hundred 
designs before deciding on the Link we know today. Interestingly, the reason Link wears blue in the final game is thanks to the pajamas from Wind Waker. In a Famitsu interview we translated, art director Satoru Takizawa said in the early stages of development, they imported Link in his pajamas into Breath of the Wild just as a placeholder. But later on when they were remodeling Link's design, they realized the blue stood out against Hyrule's green landscapes and decided to use Link's pajamas as the basis for the champion's tunic. Eventually, the PJs were added to Breath of the Wild via DLC, not only because of its significance during development, but also because it's Eiji Aonuma's favorite outfit. He said he wears it to work, to promotional events, and he even wears it off the clock, although he admits the lobster design doesn't actually make sense, since there's no lobsters in Hyrule, even in Wind Waker. To build a gigantic open world, Fujibayashi instituted a new strategy he called open-air development. He felt that one of the problems weighing down Skyward Sword was that the team got so big, the opinions of the younger staff got drowned out by the older developers who had seniority. So for Breath of the Wild, he set up a whole new system, which was basically an in-game version of Reddit. Every three to six months, the entire team spent about a week playing the game start to finish, and throughout their journey, anyone could anonymously post signs saying which parts of the game they liked and which parts Parts they didn't like. If another developer saw their sign and agreed, they could upvote it, and at the end of the week, the signs with the most upvotes let Fujibayashi know which sections of Hyrule needed to be changed the most, regardless of the voters' seniority within the company. Fujibayashi also hooked up an early version of the Hero's Path to all the developers' playthroughs, and had a giant TV in his office so he could monitor their progress. Using his subordinates like guinea pigs, he watched where they were going, where they lost hearts, and where they were dying, and used the data to decide where to increase or decrease difficulty spikes. For example, he said in Famitsu that everyone kept falling to their deaths climbing the Sheikah Towers, so they were redesigned to make them a little less dangerous. Initially, Nintendo's higher-ups didn't like the idea of pausing development so everyone could play the game beginning to end, since they expected it would delay the game's release. But eventually, they were won over by Fujibayashi's strategy, and agreed it was actually speeding things up in the long run. Fujibayashi explained to Edge magazine that by understanding the game as a whole by playtesting it, our developers could understand what the colleague next to them was working on. It's horizontal information sharing. We overcame the boundaries of roles, which often isolates information. This had quite a huge effect on the project. When the testers discovered bugs in the game, like how you can use magnesis on a metal object to propel a boat like a motor, or fly across Hyrule on a flying log, or float through the sky in a minecart, Fujibayashi told them they should only fix the bug if it hampered the experience, but if it was fun, they should leave it in. The developer's guiding philosophy for Breath of the Wild was breaking conventions, a mantra they adhered to even for the game's music. After heavy deliberation, sound designer Hajime Wakai chose piano as the game's central instrument, but doubted his decision up to the very last minute. Instead of piano, he almost centered the soundtrack around the dulcimer, and if he had, Breath of the Wild would have sounded something like this. The sound team wanted to include some classic Zelda series melodies, but Wakai made it a rule they couldn't reuse old music for cheap fan service. So for some tracks, they composed reimaginings, like the Hyrule Castle and Ganon's Lair themes, but they also went out of their way to hide some iconic themes, a few of which you can only hear by speeding up or slowing down the game's soundtrack, like the title theme from Zelda 1, revealed in the nighttime horse riding music when you double the tempo,
and Zelda's lullaby found in the daytime writing music by tripling the tempo. Quadrupling the tempo for Breath of the Wild's house interior music reveals the same theme from Ocarina of Time. Ocarina's Temple of Time melody is hidden in the new Temple of Time music, but slowed down and broken up with pauses. and the music for the Rito's original home, Dragon Roost Island, can be heard by speeding up the music in their new home, Rito Village. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And finally, this theme made its debut in Zelda 1 as the Recorder, which was later reprised for Ocarina of Time's title theme, then eventually made its way into Breath of the Wild's shrine music, made a little more apparent when you slow it down. Did you know? 
During Ocarina of Time's development, Shigeru Miyamoto and his team went to great lengths to make Link's animation as true to life as possible, and even built a motion capture studio at Nintendo HQ. The team made a mock horse to capture Link's animations riding Epona, and brought a real treasure chest on set to emulate Link getting items. They even had to rebuild and expand the mocap studio several times during production. Nintendo never named the actor who played Link, and also wouldn't identify the actor that inspired Link's design. In an interview with three Zelda artists, they said artwork for every Zelda game before Ocarina was handled by an outside studio, which resulted in Link looking a bit silly. But starting with Ocarina, Nintendo handled the series artwork in-house, which included what Link should look like. Instead of silly, they wanted him to look cool, a handsome character that could appeal to gamers in the West. According to Link's designer, Yusuke Nakano, he drew inspiration from a rather world-famous Hollywood actor. At the time, if you were to talk about a really good-looking actor, people immediately thought of this guy. So I recall keeping in mind the point of his nose and that strong will look in his eyes when I was drawing. The other artists in the interview confirmed the actor's name came up repeatedly during production, and all agreed he was quite the heartthrob. Link's age and appearance bear a strong resemblance to Leonardo DiCaprio in the 90s, and the timing matches up as well. Both 1996's Romeo and Juliet and 1997's Titanic released during Ocarina of Time's development. Titanic in particular was incredibly popular in Japan, and even made its worldwide debut in Tokyo, nearly two months before it was shown in the United States. None of the Zelda devs specifically named Link's inspiration, but their hints and the timing heavily suggests DiCaprio. Speaking of Link's appearance, Link's ears aren't pierced when he's a kid, but inexplicably, they are pierced when he's an adult. The story behind his piercing is actually explained in the Ocarina of Time manga, and although most fans don't consider it canon, the manga does include extra backstory and addresses some questions not answered in the game. In the manga, Impa trains adult Link in swordplay at Kakariko Village, then pierces his ears as a badge of honor. The Sheikah tribe performed this piercing to signify a boy growing into a man. In both the game and the manga, Link's mother was gravely injured in the Hyrulean Civil War, leaving Link in the care of the Great Deku Tree before his mother died. In the game, Link's father is never mentioned, but in the manga, Raro gives more backstory explaining that Link's dad was a member of the Guardian House that served Hyrule's king, and was killed in battle just before Link Link's mother fled to Kokiri Forest. Ocarina also never mentions Zelda's mother, but in the manga it's made clear that she died before the events of the game. Likewise, early in Ocarina, Zelda talks about her father, but we're never told what becomes of him. Rather than leaving it to our imaginations, in the manga, Ganondorf tells Zelda that he killed her father as part of his coup, and that's what causes Zelda and Impa to flee the castle on horseback. But some changes in the manga go beyond just adding backstory, with some changes showing an alternate series of events. Instead of buying the Deku Shield at the shop, Link actually carves it from a piece of the Great Deku Tree's dead body. In the manga, Link can ride Epona not just as an adult, but also when he's a child. Interestingly, Child Link could also ride Epona in the game's beta, but the feature ended up getting cut from the final game. But the biggest difference between the game and the manga involves the Fire Temple boss, Volvagia. Just after leaving the Kokiri Forest, Child Link buys a baby dragon in Castletown for 70 rupees, and the two quickly become best friends. But when Link arrives at the Fire Temple seven years later, his pet has grown into a massive dragon and fallen under the influence of Ganondorf's curse. Link begs Volvagia to remember their friendship, but it's no use, and Link has no choice but to slay the dragon by cutting off its head. With its last breath, Volvagia's decapitated head lets out a whimper, crying Link's name. Link then swears vengeance on Ganondorf, vowing he'll never forgive what he did to Volvagia. The manga also gives more insight to Zelda's 
relationship would shake. On page 295, the princess says she's literally transforming into a boy, and Impa puts Zelda to sleep, sealing her inside the sacred realm while her body is reawakened as Shake. The events depicted in the manga, as well as in-game clues like her eye color changing from blue to red, led some fans to believe Zelda and Shake are actually two different people, and Shake is literally male. Some even believe this makes the character transgender. Nintendo rarely makes official rulings on fan theories, but in 2014, Bill Trinan of Nintendo Treehouse did just that, telling Polygon, The definitive answer is that Shake is a woman, simply Zelda in a different outfit, thus settling the argument once and for all. After Ocarina of Time's development was complete, Miyamoto took an unusual amount of interest in the game's localization, making sure his story was told properly all around the world, but he wasn't always so involved. Localizations for earlier games in the series were pretty hit and miss, especially the original Zelda on NES, and the French versions were particularly goofy, where the Master Sword was localized as Excalibur. Despite the shoddy work, Nintendo's French translator didn't actually get fired until an awkward encounter at Nintendo HQ, when Zelda directed director Takashi Tezuka invited the localizers into a meeting one day for small talk, asking what they'd been up to the night before. The French translator said she'd been souvenir hunting at a sex shop, and pulled some obscene toys and magazines out of her purse, showing them to Tezuka and telling jokes we can't repeat here on YouTube. According to German translator Claude Moyes, who was in that meeting, I've never before seen such faces, and never have since then. Mr. Tezuka's face got a green tint and he took a few steps back as if she was possessed. She was fired one week later without any special explanations given. I really think it was because of Mr. Kazuka. Mr. Miyamoto would have had more humor, for sure. Now in need of a new French translator, they looked to their gamer tip hotline. Back in the early days of the internet, if fans got stuck in a game, they'd call Nintendo directly and talk with a tipster who could give them advice. One of those tipsters was Julian Bartikoff, who said that Miyamoto took the localization process for Ocarina of Time very seriously, and personally quizzed Julian with over 50 lines of text in Japanese, English, and French. Julian passed Miyamoto's test, and being the super fan he was, took the initiative of adding lots of unique flair to the French version. One example is giving the Deku Tree Sprout a lisp due to the twig in his mouth. Did you know Gaming spoke with Julian, who said he also saved the game from a huge embarrassment. I realized that Deku could be pronounced in French as Deku, which means of ass. That'd be horrible in some part of the game since Deku nuts would be nuts of the ass and Deku seeds would be seeds of the ass. So I changed the name Deku to Mojo, which sounds very cool and mystical. The Nintendo executives loved it and all the other unique changes, so they rewarded me. They said, one gossip stone in the Kakiri forest is yours. You can make it say whatever you want. Every gossip stone in every language is basically the same, except for one stone in the French version, which says, it's rumored that Zelda's translator is super cool and super Super hot. Speaking of Dekus, Miyamoto says his favorite enemy in Ocarina of Time is the Deku Scrub, because sometimes they attack you, sometimes they offer you valuable information, and sometimes they're more interested in commerce. What makes them interesting is that at a distance, you can't tell if they're friend or foe. In an interview just after Ocarina's launch, Miyamoto said he wanted to add more of these sorts of characters, but unfortunately, Deku Scrubs were the only ones that made the game's final cut. As most Zelda fans are well aware, after Ocarina of Time released in 19 1998, an expansion called Ura Zelda was planned for the Nintendo 64DD. But most fans are unaware that after the 64DD's eventual failure, Miyamoto
Miyamoto considered releasing Orozelda on the N64 as a regular cartridge title about one year after the launch of Ocarina. Miyamoto said, There were several ideas I could not incorporate into Zelda because of the lack of time and various other factors. For example, I wanted to create some extra dungeons and challenges for those who had a completed quest, and we planned for them with the predicted introduction of the DD, but now we don't know whether we'll do this or not. We may have to introduce a special edition cartridge next year instead. In a later interview, he added that Ura was planned to include some parody games to replace those found in Ocarina's version of Hyrule, but ultimately a special edition N64 cartridge was never released. Instead, a more modest form of Ura called Master Quest became a bonus disc for pre-ordering Wind Waker on GameCube. The promotion was a huge success, making Wind Waker the most pre-ordered game of all time, with over half a million copies. But many fans were disappointed when they realized Master Quest only featured the remixed dungeons, and was lacking any parody games or extra challenges. Miyamoto told fans Master Quest is Ura Zelda, but the Hyrule remix was so minor that many fans to this day still don't consider it Ura Zelda, instead classify Ura as one of the series' lost games. Did you know? Wind Waker could have had a sequel on the Game Boy Advance. Davide Soliani is best known today as the director of Mario and Rabbids Kingdom Battle, as well as the guy who cried when Miyamoto acknowledged his hard work on the game. But Davide's connection to Miyamoto actually began 15 years earlier, when he heard the legendary designer was visiting his hometown of Milan, Italy. After spending several days investigating which hotel Miyamoto was staying in, Davide camped out 10 hours in the rain just to get a chance to meet him. When Wind Waker hit store shelves a year later, Davide loved it so much he spent a month developing a Wind Waker sequel on GBA. Nowadays, he's Ubisoft Milan's creative director, but back then he was a humble designer working on games like Rayman and Tomb Raider and didn't have nearly as much clout as he does today. So when he pitched a graphical prototype of Zelda to the managing and studio directors, they decided to kill the project before Nintendo ever got a chance to see it. Davide's partner on the Wind Waker sequel was Ubisoft artist Fabio Pagetti, who told us a little more about how the pitch was born and why it got axed. Pagetti said, We were both in love with Wind Waker, and Nintendo handhelds were the major focus of Ubisoft Milan at the time, so Davide and I were wondering how Wind Waker would look on GBA. We were always talking and tinkering together about possible concepts and pitches for the studio, and this looked like such a nice fit. Eventually, I prepared this visual mock-up, and we also worked on some 3D test scenes, but we never got the opportunity to pitch the game to Nintendo. The idea of presenting it to Nintendo probably scared Ubisoft, but maybe the game exists in some other fold of the multiverse. According to Davide and Fabio, the prototype and videos they pitched unfortunately no longer exist, unless they're stuck on a hard drive somewhere. So all that remains is this single image. Davide and Fabio didn't know it, but Nintendo was working on a sequel of their own at the exact same time. Unfortunately, Nintendo's attempt was cancelled as well. When Wind Waker launched in 2002, its reception failed to live up to Nintendo's expectations, and the game only ended up selling half as many copies as Ocarina of Time. According to Wind Waker's director Eiji Aonuma, his team spent the following year in the planning stage and early development for Wind Waker 2, but ultimately abandoned the idea of a cel-shaded sequel, primarily due to financial concerns. There are far more Zelda fans in the West than there are in Japan, and Nintendo of America made it clear that Americans wanted a more realistic Zelda, and something closer to Ocarina of Time. According to Aonuma, right after Wind Waker released, we were considering a toon-shaded sequel, but a year later we settled on a more realistic approach. I was told the toon-shading gave the impression that Wind Waker was for a younger audience, and that it was alienating the older teenagers that 
that made up most of the fanbase. After hearing that, I started to worry if Wind Waker 2 was something that would actually sell, so the only thing we could do was give the American market the Zelda they were asking for. In the 2016 hardcover publication The Legend of Zelda Art and Artifacts, designer-manager Satoru Takizawa provided a little more insight on the direction Wind Waker 2 was headed before its development changed course. He said the proposed setting for Wind Waker 2 was not on the sea, but on land. The desire to depict Toon Link on a horse riding around the Great Plains was great. However, with his small stature and short arms and legs, it would have been difficult to make him look good on a horse. It wasn't like we could make an adult version of Toon Link, and that was about the time we heard that people were wanting a realistic-looking Zelda game again. Development was quickly redirected to be more in line with Ocarina of Time, and although Toon Link did eventually return on the Nintendo DS, he never got a chance to ride a horse on the big screen as Nintendo originally envisioned. After three more years in development, Twilight Princess released in 2006. It turned out Nintendo of America was right. Realistic Zelda sold more than twice as many copies as Wind Waker. Nintendo decided to capitalize on the game's success with a direct sequel, just like they'd done on the Nintendo 64. According to Miyamoto, the terrain created for Twilight Princess was vast. I really thought there was more we could do with it. So after we finished with the development of Twilight Princess, I talked to the staff about whether or not we could do a side story. With a big series like Zelda, we usually only release a new version every three to five years, but we thought it'd be great to make something for those people that really enjoy Twilight Princess where they'd be able to keep playing in the same world. The Zelda team started pre-production on a Majora-style sequel, but the idea Miyamoto chose in the end was a small side story based on the Wii Zapper. The Zelda team was shocked when they heard Miyamoto's decision, as it meant killing all the big ideas they'd started working on. Some felt strongly he wasn't making the right call. So Miyamoto proposed a compromise. They'd make a prototype for the Zapper side story and have it playtested, and if the focus group didn't like it, the Zelda team wouldn't have to make the Zapper game. The focus group ended up loving the prototype, and the project ultimately evolved into Link's crossbow training. But Miyamoto's team kept pushing to make it bigger, so we ended up making a list of rules. The developers couldn't add anything unnecessary to the game's simple concept, and every stage had to be shorter than three minutes. There couldn't be any story cutscenes, and the game couldn't have any bosses. But his team kept pushing. According to Miyamoto, they kept bugging him to include boss battles, so he finally gave in and agreed, but said they could only make one boss. Despite Miyamoto's orders, they wound up making two, the Dark Nut and the Stall Lord. The Zelda team was heartbroken when their ideas for a Twilight sequel ended up on the cutting room floor, but Link's crossbow training proved to be the right business decision. The game sold nearly six million copies, almost two million more than Wind Waker. Not everyone was happy with the side story, but crossbow training did have one very important fan, series producer Eiji Aonuma. He actually pitched a sequel with improved gameplay and online multiplayer, as he explained to Games TM in 2009. To tell you the truth, I actually wanted to create Link's crossbow training too. I thought we should do something more and better in the field of the first-person shooter, based on our experience making the first game. For example, I was thinking maybe we could intensify the multiplayer mode. The original was really just a solo game, but I thought we could add a true multiplayer mode with multiple users playing together over Wi-Fi. Nintendo's higher-ups didn't share Aonuma's enthusiasm, however, and told him he should focus on the main series. After his crossbow training 2 pitch was rejected, Aonuma got to work making a Majora-style sequel to Phantom Hourglass, which launched two years later as Spirit Tracks. Although most Zelda fans have played every mainline Zelda game, few have played Four Swords, which released alongside A Link to the Past on GBA. By connecting up to four GBAs together with Link cables, friends could explore randomly generated dungeons cooperatively, but also competitively, as each player was ranked on total rupees collected. Two years later, it was followed up with Four Swords Adventure, where each player used a Link cable to connect their GBA to a GameCube. Everyone shared the TV, but if a player went off in their own direction, gameplay switched to their GBA screen. Partly 
due to the multiplayer hardware components, Adventures never managed to sell even a million copies. But shortly before the DS released in 2005, Miyamoto suggested the DS would make this hardware issue a thing of the past. He said, at the time of GameCube and GBA connectivity, you had to connect the system to four GBAs, so the price of entry was a bit high. However, the DS has two screens and Wi-Fi support, so we feel the threshold is a lot lower. We're thinking of bringing Zelda Four Swords to the DS. And in another interview, the game's producer Eiji Aonuma told Club Nintendo, the Zelda team is already planning Four Swords for the Nintendo DS. This game will have a lot of connectivity and feature a lot of interaction between both screens. It will be interesting. But a year later, Aonuma backtracked on his previous quote, suggesting Four Swords DS turned into Phantom Hourglass during the game's prototype phase. The game's director Daiki Iwamoto eventually shed a little more light on how the Four Swords team ended up producing something completely different. They stated, it was around May 2004, right after we finished Four Swords Adventures. The DS hadn't been released yet, and the game was in the experimental stage. We started by trying many ideas on how to use the stylus, and wanted to continue exploring the theme of connectivity between two different screens. Eventually, Anima said, let's try something different. So we started to think about a new type of Zelda system, one that would become a standard for the DS. In the end, a third entry in the Four Swords series was never produced. But it's worth mentioning that the original GBA game got a remaster on DS called Four Swords Anniversary Edition, released in 2011 to celebrate the franchise's 25th birthday. The DS remaster added lots of updates and brand new content, including a single-player mode, wireless connectivity, and new stages based on Zelda 1, A Link to the Past, and Link's Awakening. The Anniversary Edition never got a physical release, and was only available for digital download for five months on DS, then for just four days on 3DS a few years later. As a result, it's been unobtainable since 2014, meaning most Zelda fans never got a chance to experience the Four Swords remaster. In 2009, rumors spread that Retro Studios was working on a Zelda game for Wii, but those rumors weren't proven until May 2020, when concept art was found on an ArtStation account for Sammy Hall, who previously worked at Retro Studios on games like Metroid Prime 3 and Donkey Kong Country Returns. According to Hall, the concept art was from a cancelled Zelda project that would have taken place in the Bad Timeline, the timeline where Ganon defeated Link at the end of Ocarina of Time. Instead of Link, the spin-off starred the last surviving male Sheikah, after the rest of the Sheikah were wiped out in a genocidal Event. The Last Sheik's journey was planned as an origin story for the Master Sword, and the plot used the Gerudo's 100-year birth of Ganon as a backdrop. Hall's notes reveal the project began in 2005 during the Wii era, but ended up being cancelled in 2008. Retro's post-apocalyptic Hyrule took some visual inspiration from Twilight Princess, while also introducing lots of brand new ideas. Concept art included enemy types labeled Clock Kids, as well as Deku Warriors, the Lord of the Swamp, and several designs that may be bosses. There was also the Dark Valu race, creatures clearly connected to Wind Waker's Valu. Some concept art was titled Autumn, implying a use of seasons, possibly inspired by Oracle of Seasons. According to Sammy Hall, it was very experimental stuff, but games in the Zelda universe have very weird stuff, and this game was setting out to be ten times weirder. Three days after his artwork was first spotted by Metroid fan site Shinesparkers, Hall gave IGN a brief statement explaining the game was still in pre-production when it got cancelled, adding it was mostly handled internally at Retro without much involvement from Nintendo HQ. According to Hall, the game was cooked up by three retro leads, including Mark Passini, the director of Metroid Prime 1, 2, and 3. But production came to a halt when all three of them quit retro to start their own studio in April 2008. Just a few hours after he spoke with IGN, Hall's social media was deleted, and even his Patreon account got pulled down, making fans speculate Nintendo, or possibly Retro's legal department, were the ones who pulled the plug. Since then, anyone involved has been unable or unwilling to comment, and no further details have been made public. However, it's important 
important to note that Sammy Hall uploaded all this concept art after finding it on an old hard drive, so it's possible that other retro employees still have more artwork and documents that hopefully someday might find their way onto the internet, revealing more about the three-year project. A few months after Link's Awakening was re-released with some updates on the Game Boy Color, Capcom producer Yoshiki Okamoto approached Miyamoto about remaking Zelda 1 in the style of Link's Awakening. Perhaps wanting to avoid a repeat of the CDI debacle, Miyamoto blew him off, but Okamoto refused to take no for an answer, threatening to produce a rip-off if Miyamoto didn't say yes. In a 1999 interview with German magazine Total, Okamoto explained how the trilogy project came into existence. He said, I especially like the Zelda on Famicom, but Nintendo just wasn't interested in translating it onto the Game Boy Color, so I told Mr. Miyamoto that I wanted to produce the game, but nothing ever came of it, so I had to threaten him. The magazine, probably shocked, asked him to repeat himself. You threatened him? I said if Nintendo doesn't want to do it, Capcom will make an identical game, but just change the name of the game and all the characters. Then he asked if we wanted to develop the game legitimately. We immediately accepted. Eventually, a deal was struck that after the remake was complete, Capcom would follow it up with a trilogy of brand new games called the Triforce series. As producer, Okamoto was meant to supervise the remake's development, but ended up spending most of his time overseas, so the project was led by Capcom director Hidemaru Fujibayashi. If that name sounds familiar, it's because after the partnership between Capcom and Nintendo was dissolved, Fujibayashi was hired to work directly for Nintendo and later served as director on Breath of the Wild, and is currently directing its sequel. In many ways, Breath of the Wild was a reimagining of Zelda 1, but at the time, Fujibayashi wasn't as enthusiastic about remaking Zelda 1 as his boss Okamoto. The Capcom team felt Zelda 1 was too difficult for the modern generation of gamers, so they ended up scrapping the remake and skipping ahead to development of the Triforce series. According to Miyamoto, the Tale of Power was originally planned to launch in late 1999 and focus on action, followed up a few months later with the puzzle-based Tale of Wisdom, and then a few months after that the trilogy would conclude with the Tale of Courage. All three games would be connected with passwords, so after completing one game, fans could continue their adventure in the next installment. It was expected that fans would play the trilogy in the order they were released, but they were being developed in a way that fans could play the games in any order they wanted. The Triforce series was initially planned to make use of the mobile system GB, a service that allowed fans to connect a Game Boy Color to the internet by using a cell phone adapter. Miyamoto said, The original idea for those games was for them to be more episodic in content, and the development actually started with the notion of potentially trying to sell dungeons individually. Linking all three games together proved too much for the team, however, so Okamoto made more than just a call for help. He had to send out an SOS for Miyamoto to ride in on a white horse and save the trilogy from development hell. To get the project back on course, Miyamoto cut the series from three games down to just two, and any ideas involving online features were thrown out as well. The games were temporarily rebranded as the Mysterious Seeds series, but in the end, the Tale of Power became Oracle Seasons, and the Tale of Wisdom became Oracle of Ages. After more than a year of delays, instead of releasing episodically, the games finally launched together in February 2001. Bits and pieces of the cancelled Zelda 1 remake found their way into Seasons. Both games have a western graveyard, and the first dungeon can be found inside a dead tree on a small island, and even the dungeons' internal layouts are similar. Six of Seasons' dungeon bosses were also taken from Zelda 1. As for the Tale of Courage, also known as the Mystical Seed of Courage, it's impossible to know exactly how much made its way into Oracle of Ages and Seasons, but in addition to the online features, we do know a few more pieces of the puzzle that got left out. The two games that survived made use of magic items called the Harp of Ages and the Rod of Seasons, while concept art revealed in the Hyrule Astoria suggests the last game in the trilogy was 
was planned around the magic paintbrush, an item that would have taken full advantage of the Game Boy Color. The Oracle Nairu plays a central role in Ages, and Din stars in Seasons, while the third game was originally planned to feature Ferrari. Since the game was never finished, Ferrari ended up with just a small token role in Ages and Seasons, essentially as a password clerk in the Hall of Secrets. Some websites claim that Capcom was also planning to remake Zelda 2 for the Game Boy Color, but we couldn't find any credible evidence to support that claim, even after talking to Okamoto himself. So it appears the idea of Capcom remaking Zelda 2 was nothing more than a rumor. But there has been some legitimate interest in remaking Zelda 2 over the years, not only from outside studios, but also from Shigeru Miyamoto himself. Miyamoto has gone on record more than once saying Zelda 2 was one of his biggest regrets, even referring to the game as a failure. So in the early 90s, he began working on a Super Nintendo remake with Zelda and Mario alumni Yoshiaki Koizumi. If the game made heavy use of polygons, it was probably running on the Super FX chip, a co-processor that allowed for incredibly advanced graphics for its time, powering both Star Fox and Super Mario World 2 Yoshi's Island. The project was ultimately cancelled, but buzz surrounding a potential remake has continued to this day. Most recently in 2018, when Inti Creates CEO Takuya Aizu said Zelda 2 was his dream remake. Inti Creates is famous for breathing new life into old games and big IP belonging to other companies, like they did with Mega Man 9 and 10, and Bloodstained, Curse of the Moon. So we reached out to Mr. Aizu to ask what a Zelda 2 remake might look like with him in the driver's seat. Aizu told us, If we were to start development right away, I think it would be very aware of its Famicom Disk System roots. But if this dream remake were to happen a few years down the road, I think it would be made in a way that would be most suitable for players at that time using the best development techniques we have available at NT Creates. But if you talk too much about your dreams, they cease to be dreams, so I think I'll leave it at that. He told us discussions with Nintendo hadn't taken place, at least not yet. So we took the liberty of sending our email directly to Nintendo in hopes that someday, NT Creates might get the chance to add Zelda 2 to their long list of retro remakes. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Did you know? Hyrule Warriors likely only exists due to a fortunate coincidence. Nintendo is known to be very strict with their IPs, so when Koei Tecmo approached Nintendo about making a Dynasty Warriors-styled Zelda title, they were surprised the idea wasn't outright rejected. What the team didn't know was that Zelda series director Eiji Awanuma happened to be playing through One Piece Pirate Warrior at the time, a title that has the same gameplay as Dynasty Warriors. So when Koei Tecmo approached him about a possible collaboration, Aonuma was receptive. And after the idea of mixing Zelda and Dynasty Warriors, Warriors, Aonuma enthusiastically agreed and gave the team considerable freedom. Despite the freedom that Koei Tecmo had, Nintendo still heavily influenced the new subseries. Originally, the game was going to be very similar to traditional Zelda titles with very few Dynasty Warriors elements. For example, it was planned to have full-blown boss battles with dungeons to explore. However, Zelda creator Shigeru Miyamoto saw this proposal and was very dissatisfied with its direction. He flipped the pitch, saying the game should be more of a Dynasty Warriors title with Zelda elements leading to the Hyrule Warriors we know today. The team then had to go back to the drawing board, reworking much of their proposal. Despite this course change, the discussion and pre-development period lasted only about half a year. Actual development of Hyrule Warriors went very smoothly, with Koei Tecmo and Nintendo spending about a year and a half actually working on the game. Internally, the project would be called Project Z, as evidenced by concept art and game data. 
In the Japanese version of Hyrule Warriors for the Wii U, there are several unused files relating to the game's early development. Several portraits from Dynasty Warriors 8 can be found, along with several assets relating to Tingle. This suggests that Tingle was originally planned to be a base game character, but was cut during development. In-game text and some code also exists for Tingle, but in nowhere near completed state. The code also suggests he would use his balloon as a weapon, which might suggest his DLC appearance in the Majora's Mask pack didn't differ too much from his original planned appearance. In an interview shortly after the game's release, it was revealed that Aonuma pushed back against the idea of Tingle being in the game. This was due to Western fans disliking the character and Aonuma wanting to prevent backlash and annoyance. Tingle wasn't the only character left on the cutting room floor. Linkle, initially a female alt of Link, was also proposed by Koei Tecmo early in development. The team gave her a sword at first, but later decided they wanted to use crossbows as a reference to Link's crossbow training on the Wii. Koei Tecmo had a difficult time deciding what role she would play, such as if she'd be Link's sister and what the implications of that would be. The role of Linkle was hotly debated by the development team. Producer Yosuke Hayashi has stated, There was some consideration of including a female Link, but in the end we decided that might kind of shift the focus of the game, so that idea was realized in the female sorceresses Lana and Sia. These arguments led to Linkle being outright dropped from the original game. In Japan, a special edition of the game was released with an art book featuring sketches of Linkle alongside some basic info. Fans took a keen interest in the character, especially outside of Japan, which led to Linkle being put into Hyrule Warriors All-Stars. Koei Tecmo spent a lot of time trying to perfect her design and wanted her to have a younger sister vibe. Originally, she was planned to be an exact female copy of Link, but the team wanted to add more character to her. To make her more likable, they gave her a trait of being bad with directions. In the end, Linkle being terrible with directions, despite literally having a compass was well received by fans. Koei Tecmo also spent a lot of time on the game's original characters, Lana and Sia. Originally, they weren't planned as sorceresses at all, but fairies. This was changed during development to flesh out the story and provide a reason as to why different universes were connected. The team also considered adding Wind Waker content to the original Hyrule Warriors. However, many thought Wind Waker differed too much visually from Twilight Princess, Skyward Sword, and Ocarina of Time. When Nintendo and Koei Tecmo decided to make a 3DS sequel, they chose to include a Wind Waker epilogue to the game's story. This was wasn't the only story change in the Hyrule Warriors series, with Linkle's introduction in Hyrule Warriors All-Stars being more ambitious. Originally, the team envisioned Linkle wandering into the Temple of Souls. Girahim would present and would be placing a curse on Link. Darunia and Lana would then show up and start competing with Girahim in a dance-off to rescue Link. Linkle would approach the dancing group and try to put a stop to everything. However, when she got closer to Link, much to her horror, she discovered that it was actually Tingle. In the end, it would all be a dream. The team decided to cut this bizarre story sequence and focus on Linkle's character development. When making the DLC for the Wii U and 3DS versions, the team decided to approach each DLC with a theme. For the Wii U, Koei Tecmo wanted to focus on console Zelda releases, while with the 3DS they focused on handheld games. The developers were very passionate about what characters should make it in, often leading to intense arguments. At WonderCon 2016, producer Yosuke Hayashi revealed one fan-favorite character they often discussed. Groose from Skyward Sword was heavily considered for the game's roster or DLC, but was sadly passed over. Hyrule Warriors features some sort of reference to almost every single Nintendo-published Zelda title. Characters from most console releases of Zelda made it into the game's rosters. However, some costumes have more obscure references which aren't clear at first glance. While the Oracle games wouldn't get a character or weapon representation, Impa's red and green costume is most likely a reference to the Impa from those titles. Sadly, this seems to be the only Oracle representation in Hyrule Warriors. Volga has an orange costume which references Barbara, a snake dragon boss from the Adventure of Link. Even the Japan 
only Tingle games were referenced in Hyrule Warriors through Tingle's weapons and outfits. All in all, it seems just two titles missed the boat. The Minish Cap and Triforce Heroes seem to be the only main Zelda titles that aren't referenced in some way. It's not surprising that Triforce Heroes missed out in Hyrule Warriors as it was released after the Wii U version, but it's unfortunate that the title wasn't represented in the 3DS or Switch releases. As for the Minish Cap, it's unknown why Koei Tecmo and Nintendo didn't include any references to it. There were several character redesigns during development of Hyrule Warriors. Link's iconic blue scarf wasn't originally present, and at one point it was even green. In one of the pieces of concept art, a ghostly Zelda can be seen supporting Link, enhancing his sword and shield. Zelda went through a number of designs, including one where she wore a helmet. Sheik also had several scrapped designs before the team decided to stay close to their Ocarina of Time appearance. These weren't the only characters that were changed. Tetra was originally planned to use bullets, but due to age rating concerns, her weapon was changed to a water pistol. The 3DS version's box art also had to be redrawn to bring it in line with age ratings. Originally, Koei Tecmo wanted Link's sword to be front and center, pointing at the viewer, but it had to be altered to ensure a lower age rating. Hyrule Warriors had a huge impact on the Legend of Zelda series and Aonuma himself. Before Breath of the Wild's release, Aonuma stated, I talked about the idea of the open world and how we're really going to bring it to life in the next installment of the series. With Hyrule Warriors, it's not a huge open world, but it's a large area with battles taking place all the time. My goal is to eliminate that sort of formula with the Zelda series as a whole and make it more of, as in with Hyrule Warriors, this large space where you have to figure out what your experience is going to be within that space. Breath of the Wild would employ huge boss battles that could be fought in the map, most notably the game's final boss. The Hyrule Warriors games had several glitches which gave advantages to players. One glitch allowed players to collect a lot of rupees. Another glitch caused characters to swap out movesets with each other. One possible piece of unused data can be accessed through this glitch. By putting Lana's moveset over Zelda's, players could hear Zelda sing her lullaby. It's unused by both Zelda and Lana and can only be accessed through the glitch. The Switch version featured a bug in the game's co-op mode. The terrain on the second player's screen would be loaded onto the first player's screen if the game was kept on for too long. Koei Tecmo would eventually fix this issue in an update to the game. The 3DS version is one of the few Nintendo 3DS titles to have the 3D view disabled during gameplay. This was because the console had difficulty running the game with a lot of enemies. Playing on the new 3DS allowed more enemies to be on the screen, making Hyrule Warriors All-Stars one of the few games to utilize the power difference between the standard 3DS and improved new 3DS. There's been a fair amount of Nintendo TV shows throughout the years, and even a few movies like the Super Mario Bros. live-action film, as well as the animated Animal Crossing film from 2006. But for every show or film that actually released, there's a project that got scrapped. In this video, we'll be talking about a few of the more interesting and unique lost Nintendo shows and movies, with the first project being a modern take on their classic fantasy franchise. In 2015, the Wall Street Journal reported that a new show based on the Legend of Zelda franchise was in the works at Netflix, with Nintendo reportedly working closely alongside Netflix to bring Hyrule to life. At the time of the Wall Street Journal's article, the show was said to be in its early stages of development, with Netflix seeking writers to start work on the project. As an indication of what the final project might look like, the show was apparently described as a Game of Thrones but for family audiences. This rumor seemed a bit unrealistic to some, as Nintendo has historically been very protective of their intellectual properties being used for TV and film. As such, several outlets tried to get confirmation on the rumor. The Wall Street Journal reached out to both Nintendo and Netflix, with a Netflix spokeswoman declining to comment, and a Nintendo spokesperson simply saying that they don't comment on rumors and speculation. Just over a month after the rumor broke, Time.com got the chance to ask then-Nintendo president Satoru Iwata about the rumor. 
Iwata responded by saying, As of now, I have nothing new to share with you in regard to the use of our IPs for any TV shows or films, but I can at least confirm that the article in question is not based on correct information. Iwata's comments didn't seem to outright refute the rumors, which to some looked like confirmation that something was actually happening behind the scenes with Nintendo and Netflix. Despite there being some optimism, nothing came of the rumor for quite some time. Six years after the original article, the project was finally confirmed to be real by comedian and writer Adam Conover, who's worked on several Netflix projects. But the confirmation came with some bad news that the project had been outright cancelled by Nintendo. Conover appeared as a guest on the Surf Times podcast and dropped a bombshell 40 minutes into the video. Not only did Nintendo scrap the Zelda show, but they also canceled the stop-motion Star Fox series that was also in the works at Netflix. Conover lamented, Suddenly there were reports Netflix wasn't going to do its Legend of Zelda anymore. I was like, what happened? And then I heard from my boss we weren't doing our Star Fox anymore. I was like, what happened? He was like, someone at Netflix leaked the Legend of Zelda thing. They weren't supposed to talk about it, Nintendo freaked out, and they pulled the plug on everything. The entire program to adapt to these things. This Star Fox series was going to be produced by College Humor with direct input from Star Fox creator Shigeru Miyamoto. The show's visual style would have been based on Wes Anderson's stop-motion adaptation of Roald Dahl's Fantastic Mr. Fox. This came about after College Humor made a 2011 parody short titled Fantastic Mr. Star Fox that parodied both Star Fox and the Fantastic Mr. Fox film. It's clear that a lot of love went into the short, with College Humor being able to not only understand the Star Fox world, but faithfully recreate the animation style of Wes Anderson. And it clearly impressed Nintendo enough for them to give the green light to adapt an entire series. However, according to Conover, the project was short-lived and was unfortunately cancelled along with the live-action Zelda series. There's been no official word on whether Nintendo actually pulled the plug on these shows due to a leak, but it does roughly line up with their past behavior. In September 2017, the Mario & Luigi Superstar Saga 3DS remake leaked online several weeks ahead of its official launch due to an online influencer. In response, Nintendo heavily scaled back the amount of outlets and influencers who were given early copies of Nintendo games to review. Yeah, that would really suck for uh, anyone who that happened to. <clears throat> the general consensus at the time was that this was an overreaction by Nintendo, as not only did Nintendo know exactly who leaked their game, but their retaliation disproportionately affected small reviewers and websites that had nothing to do with the leak. Likewise, the Netflix projects being cancelled seemed like an overreaction to the crews making the shows. After all, if all the leak did was confirm that the project existed, it's hardly a major spoiler. However, to give some credit to Nintendo, if the leak did come from a source at Netflix, it's understandable that they might want to distance themselves from a company they feel has shown unprofessional behavior and is incapable of protecting sensitive information. But some projects we're covering didn't even make it this far into production. In 2013, news broke that a few years earlier, a fairly established animation studio attempted to get approval to produce a CG Zelda film. The pitch in question was put forward by Imagi Animation Studios, who might sound familiar to you if you're a fan of TMNT. Although the studio was formed in 2000, Imagi's first major project wasn't until 2007 with TMNT, which they produced themselves over the course of two years. And it seems that after TMNT, Imagi jumped straight into this Zelda pitch, which was produced in early 2007. It was supervised and edited by Imagi animator Adam Holmes, who is actually the reason anyone knows about this pitch in the first place. Holmes posted the pitch video to his portfolio website for all to see. In the pitch, Zelda is hunted down and ambushed by Ganon's forces. This leads to Link saving her from Ganon's grunts, but results in Ganon confronting them directly himself. Unfortunately, the video ends before the confrontation. 
Despite the quality of the animation and Imagi demonstrating at least a basic understanding and admiration for the franchise, the pitch was turned down by Nintendo. Instead, Imagi would end up working on the 2009 Astro Boy movie based on the popular manga of the same name. But unfortunately, Astro Boy had a disappointing performance at the box office, reportedly only making 42 million despite having a budget of 65 million. We'd like to say that Imagi's luck changed after Astro Boy, but this was followed by several more cancelled projects and the studio hasn't released a movie since. Did you know that Sega actually heavily influenced the design of the PlayStation 1? Or that a British man had his name legally changed to PlayStation 2? For a whole bunch of PlayStation facts, check out the video on screen. This video actually features so many of my favorite PS1 games. Tony Hawk's, Melga Solid, Alundra, Castlevania, Final Fantasy VII. I mean, they're all there. You should play them all. They're all brilliant. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.